0: life of christ is the class you're in life of christ you can turn over to the book of john chapter number four in the gospels a lot of reasons why i chose the life of christ Uh, prayerfully of course believing it was of the lord but the life of christ really um, exhibits what we believe it's the gospel it is Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and uh, and we have uh, studied so far, if you've been here a while, you may maybe caught some of the incarnation of Christ, where he came and be- the Christmas story, and then um, the miracles of Christ, the parables of Christ, and uh, now we're studying the encounters with Christ, okay, so um, different times when people came to Christ and they discussed things. Uh, but they did not have a miracle that was performed and uh, so it's a division that we make, it's not necessarily chronological uh, if you tried to do a chronological study of the gospels, the life of Christ you're going to spend uh, a lot of that time kind of trying to argue which which event comes first uh, in order because the gospels weren't written chronologically uh, and they were they were they to have a harmony of all four is a lot of study and uh, so you end up in that kind of scenario studying a lot of material that proves what came in what order rather than studying the bible directly and so that's the that's the reason for the type of divisions that we're following and uh, it's a logical kind of analytical way to look at it from here we can you can count on a section on the discourses like the Sermon on the mount and Olivet Discourse and so forth and probably uh, some study on his disciples and then the crucifixion, resurrection and all that and his second coming maybe but all of that in front of us the life of Christ is the gospel to believe to be saved you have to know that Christ died for you that he was buried and rose again and so his mission here uh, encompasses the gospel message it's what we believe. And so when you get into these, uh, this study, I believe it's most beneficial for a Christian to grow in their understanding of the time of Jesus Christ. And uh, so I, and I really enjoy it. Another smaller reason why I like to teach on the life of Christ is because I enjoy it so much. And I hope that the Lord has used it in your life. So in this lesson three of the encounters of Christ, we come to this well at Sychar. And uh, we started this last week, and this lesson is divided into two places, two different lessons, part one and part two. The outline you have in your hand is part one. (laughs) We got through last week what I had uh, some information, lengthy information, that I have introductory material. And we got through Roman numeral one and capital letter A, the water. uh, The water. It was a picture uh, of... Salvation. So the first point there was petition. If you want to fill these in, I'll just read these to you. The petition is number one. Uh, Number two is the portrayal. P O R T R A Y A L. Portrayal. Um, Then number three is the perplexity. The perplexity. I believe I gave that to you last week. uh, And we ended right before then. Talking about how this water represents salvation how does the water represent salvation in the point before that the betrayal and i gave you those and then we mentioned the perplexity and the plea so we get down here let's read a few verses here and uh, we get into verse number three of this passage and uh, we have and he must talk about jesus jesus must needs go through samaria there's a time when you go out of your way uh, to win people to jesus christ Okay? And uh, that's what Jesus did. We talked about the normal route that circumfaces um, that place because of the animosity, the prejudice between those two uh, nationalities. Verse 5, Then cometh he to the city uh, of Samaria, which is called Sychar, near to the parcel of ground that Jacob gave to his son Joseph. Now, Jacob's well was there, Jesus therefore being wearied with his journey Sat thus on the well, and it was about the sixth hour. There cometh a woman of Samaria to draw water. Jesus saith unto her, "Give me to drink, for his disciples were gone away, in unto the city to buy meat." Then saith the woman of Samaria unto him, "How is it that thou, being a Jew, asketh drink of me, which am a woman of Samaria? For the Jews have no dealings with the Samaritans." Jesus answered and said unto her, "If thou knewest the gift of God, and who it is that saith to thee, give me to drink, thou wouldst have asked of him." And he would have given thee living water. Okay, so this is where we ended last week. Noting on there that the water represented eternal life. And uh, we see that uh, specified in verse number 14. Uh, But it was a gift. He said, if thou knewest the gift of God, salvation is a gift. And uh, how do you get it? He said, you would have asked. So you get it. Salvation, whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord. Who is the giver? It comes from God, through Jesus Christ. What do you gain? Life eternal, it's living water. And the guarantee, shall never thirst. That you never have to go back to drink again of salvation. Salvation is a permanent issue. So, so number three in our outline, the perplexity about the water. Uh, again, we come to this place in an encounter with Christ where questions are asked. Uh, so look at the question she says in verse number 11 the woman saith unto him sir thou hast nothing to draw with and the well is deep from whence then hast thou that living water okay so she's got him or he's got her thinking about the water that he's made an offer of course he doesn't have any physical water there Uh, he is referring to eternal life and he's drawing this lady to Desire something that she doesn't comprehend. Eternal life. Do you remember when you got saved? There were certain things that before you came to that point of salvation, there were some things that were missing in your understanding of Jesus. The message of salvation talks about uh, how you can know for sure when you're dying that you know that you know that you know you're going to heaven. Very simple. Uh, but to arrive at that, there's some knowledge of God some knowledge of Jesus and his payment for sins and then there's something that's missing in that understanding Jesus is doing this he's telling her the gospel in a picture he draws her to a desire to want this and she's confused she said "Uh, man I don't understand what you're talking about and so uh, again we point out that faith ought to be questioned If uh, you come to church and the pastor's preaching and you see it in the Bible and then you say to yourself, boy, I don't understand that. Amen. Ask those questions. Uh, There's a group out there today that when their young people get to a point where they're asking questions, they simply reply, those questions are not allowed to be asked. You just need more faith. Okay? Now, there's a problem with that kind of faith or religion I don't know if I wanna what I wanna label that in its kindest form. we'll call it a belief in something, but everywhere in the New Testament, the encounters of Christ, we have those questions being answered. Lord, we don't understand. Ask the hard questions, amen find those hard questions and ask them and uh if you're struggling with that, come and see me uh I'll wrestle with those answers. Uh, and and with you and uh, that's fun so before i came to christ i was really at a point where i was whether i was going to be a believer in god or a believer in atheism i was denying the existence of god and what i was doing and i didn't understand is i was asking those hard questions just because my dad is a believer and my mother's a believer and i'm surrounded by believers at church then uh, how do i know that it's real it can't just be something everybody else does so these are i invite you to reason through this and ask these very important questions and uh, so she does and even in verse 12 look at her question in verse 12 art thou greater than our father jacob which gave us this well drink thereof himself and his children and his cattle now jesus had said to him to her in verse 10 if thou knewest the gift of god and who it is that asketh saith to thee okay so there's two things that she's ignorant of she's ignorant of the gift itself what is this water and she's ignorant of who she she's speaking with right this is jesus but not just a joshua the name jesus is the same as the old testament joshua we have others that are there um jesus is not here today but uh his name is jesus in the spanish they it's a very common thing they name their kids jesus his uh jesus jr is uh yesterday said he's um jesus jr's got a fever he's sick so he's at home taking care of the baby uh but anyway um it's not uncommon to have those names but this isn't just another joshua this is jesus the messiah and so she's, he is bringing her understanding to that place where she can comprehend this. So she's ignorant of the person. She's ignorant of the picture of uh, what the water means. But Jesus answers her in verse number 13. Jesus answered and said unto her, Whosoever drinketh of this water shall thirst again. But whosoever drinketh of the water that I shall give him shall never thirst but the water that I shall give him shall be in him a well of water springing up into everlasting life. It's like he's pulling away the curtain and saying, look, the gift is eternal life. Amen. He clarifies it in Romans chapter number 6 where he says, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. And then he tells us again in Ephesians when he's writing that the epistle to the Ephesians saying, it is the gift of God not of works, lest any man should boast. So this is a very common thread through the New Testament in the teaching that God has a gift for every individual that's been born. He said, whosoever, whosoever, meaning anybody, and uh, not not limited, not not limited in scope, not limited in ability to save. Jesus can save everyone, but he calls it a gift, and the gift is eternal life. And uh, so, he reveals this, and he, he talks about its benefits. That if you get down and drink the water out of this well in Sychar, you'll thirst again. But, if you drink of the water that I'm speaking of, which he said in eternal life, he said you'll never thirst again. Amen. And uh, she then comes with, uh, let number four, the plea. The plea. plea. Uh, So, and that is in verse number 15. Look what she says. You can can almost feel the the heart beating inside of her uh, and, 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 and just crying out to God, Sir, give me this water. And that's where people have to come to the place where they want salvation. They want the reality of this special gift of eternal life. And they say to Jesus... Give me eternal life. I want the gift of God. Amen. It's exciting, but Jesus takes a turn. I, when I was younger, I always wondered, you know, here is this lady standing there, willing to, whatever Jesus says, she, he, she is saying, I want this gift. But he doesn't say, okay, just bow your head and pray. He has to deal with something first. What does he deal with? So uh, we get to point number two, or letter B, and it's wickedness. The wickedness. We said the water, now the wickedness. All right? What does he say in verse 16? She says, Give me this water. He said, Go call thy husband. Now, doesn't that seem to be like off track in the conversation? Doesn't that seem to be like All right, Lord, you were just talking about water. You've got her to the place where she wanted it. Now, where are we going here? Okay, that isn't a mistake. The Lord made no mistakes. Salvation cannot be, there is no salvation unless there's a reason to be saved. Okay, if there's no water, there's no reason to save a drowning person. They're not drowning. But we are sinners. And before a person can really accept the gift of God, they must know where they stand before God as a sinner. Go call thy husband. Jesus couldn't have asked a more cutting question, a more revealing question. And uh, so the first point under this is the convicting, the convicting, C-O-N-G-I-C-T-I-N-G. Dave, did you get an outline? you're fine okay the convicting she said go call thy husband Ah, uh, she does desire the living water but in order to understand salvation you can't be saved without knowing the guilt of your sin the lord even says that the gospel message itself is not without offense you wonder why people are upset with you when you tell them about jesus and Part of the reason is because it is convicting of sin. You, you can't uh, you can't heal somebody of a of a disease without addressing the disease, and the disease mankind has is that we're all sinners. And uh, but look what he says to her in that verse: "Go, call your husband and come hither." So not only the convicting, but secondly the compassion, the compassion. This is the message for every sinner. Hey, realize your sin, and then come to me. That's the way Jesus deals with us. He didn't say, hey, come to me and without an, an acknowledgement of your sin. There's no salvation without conviction of sin. Right. But he cuts in there and says, look at your sin, examine it, know that you're a sinner, but come to me. And Jesus has come to us, in the form of, dying for us, coming from heaven and living a perfect life and dying on the cross. But he first says, go, call your husband. Then he says, come, because I'm going to save you. Now look thirdly under this point at the covering, C-O-V-E-R-I-N-G, the covering, the covering. Look at, I mean by this, her response. Look at verse 17, John chapter 4, verse 17. The woman answered and said, I'm just like everybody else. I'm going to try to hide my sin. <laughs> that's really what she's doing here. She's going to say, Oh, I'm, I don't have a husband. Is that the truth? Well, Jesus tells her, I know that's the truth in the next verse. So it's sort of the truth, but it's not the whole truth, is it? And then somebody has to realize here, this lady has to know she's dealing with omniscience. So she gets to covering... It's not easy to acknowledge sinfulness. I think that's why what keeps uh, some people from getting saved is the fact that we don't want to say, I am a sinner and I deserve hell. You know what else? We don't want to say that everything we were trusting in is no good. That's hard. I mean, we ho- whatever it is that we were trusting in, for me, and my, we only know our experiences, okay? i tell you what I felt when I got saved. I was, when I say I didn't know if God was real, I wanted God to be real. I just couldn't trust it because I would t- say to my father, well, have you seen God? I'm not being disrespectful, but I said, have you shaken his hand? How do you know there's a God? I wanted God to be real, but he, he wasn't real to me. I didn't understand it. Okay, but when a person is in that mode, in that understanding, what they're really trusting in is their hands, their senses. I had to have some connection. I at least need to smell that there's a God or hear that there's a God. Or, and, and, and the fact is we have a, 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 a better than an eyewitness, the Lord says, we have the word of God passed on to us. What an incredible word I mean, just an unbelievable amount of uh, collaboration. Every word that's pure, not a contradiction, not anything. But for me, I had to turn on my hands and say I'm not trusting in my eyes or my ears or my hands or any of my senses. You know, we are unwilling to do that. People in that are raised and they say, well, I've always believed this, 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 and this. Why have you believed this? What if it's not biblical? If it's not biblical, then you have to stop and say, for me to be saved, I've got to stop trusting in this and turn to Jesus alone for salvation. We are unwilling to say we're sinners condemned and we're unwilling to turn from false belief. Well, you've got to come to the place where there's no salvation until you reckon with who Jesus really is. And he's about to do this. But she says, I don't have a husband. She's covering her tracks. Ah, this is what's amazing. So anyway, look at the last word here. Maybe this one's a little bit too far. I should have just said uh, another word. Cognizance. You know what that word means? I'll I'll spell for it, C-O-G-N-I-Z-A-N-C-E, the cognizance. That means he knew. So ask me why I didn't write he knew, his knowledge. Right? Because it doesn't start with C, that's all. Right? Okay, so cognizance. Verse number 17, please. I have no husband, she said. Jesus said, Thou hast well said, I have no husband. For thou hast had five husbands... And he whom thou now hast is not thy husband. In that saidest thou truly. Now, I I just have a feeling like Jesus loved this woman in a way that only Jesus could have. She grew up the daughter of somebody, maybe a a father that ran off. She apparently has problems finding the right kind of individual to be married to. But her life has been broken. I mentioned this last week, that divorce has never helped anybody, except for the divorce attorneys, right? Say, what is her life like? Heartache. The greatest heartache a person will probably go through in their life is a divorce if they are going through that. And her history is probably a series of children from five different marriages. And the residue of those means that here she is probably not carrying the water for her own household, probably carrying it as a servant for another household. She's probably laboring with her hands, hoping and living with a man, trying to get him to pay some of the bills for the the children that are from those marriages So she carries a burden of not being able to supply the needs of her family. A woman at this time would have been destitute without a husband. Having these children to care for, but she carries underneath her daily look on her face this tremendous heartache from not one divorce but five. What a difficult life. Standing there, Jesus loves her. Says, I see what you've been through, and I'm the only solution. And I know that you've had five husbands. The Lord is never sarcastic, so never look at the scripture as sarcasm. The only closest thing we have to sarcasm is in Elijah's day when he said, Maybe Baal is out taking a journey, maybe he's asleep. But the rest of the Bible, what we find is Jesus condemning sin in serious tones and loving sinners, no matter how bad they are. Before we look at this woman and say, what a dirty woman, let's relate to this woman that if God could love that situation, well he could love just about any problem. His compassion knows no (laughs) ends. I mean, it is every sinner, every sinner. They say, well, what about the really, really bad people? How bad? What is the worst sin? Murder, molestation. Can he save? He saves because he loves every dirty, rotten sinner. And look at these walls. He loves all the dirty, rotten sinners sitting inside these four walls. Because God is good. I love it. I just love it, what he does. And what is he trying to do, his revelation here saying I know these things and he's trying to say uh, I'm not just an individual passing through I am the Messiah she's wondering already and so we get to the third major point of this outline from the wickedness the water wickedness now go to letter C the worship while we're doing is following the conversation here and go down, if you will, to verse 19. The woman, her this is her response. The woman saith unto him, Sir, I perceive that thou art a prophet. Isn't that brilliant? That is a brilliant statement. I mean, here she is, he's talking about living water, and if you drink this water, you'll never thirst again. Obviously, he has no bucket, no way to go get water and bring it. She says, Where do you have this water? And uh, he talks about this being eternal life. Eternal life, give me this water. Go call your husband. Uh-oh, uh, I don't have a husband. Hoping that, that that's the end of that part of the conversation. Jesus said, well, I think you've said truly, but you've had five. And the one you're with now, you're not married to. I think you're a prophet. <coughs> How do you know this? Amazing. And she perceives it, now get this, and the Lord entertains her questions. Again, we are looking at a situation of a sinner walking toward the Lord, and the Lord reaching out and bringing her in her comprehension along, and the hard questions are being asked, and she's looking into the face of Almighty God. Now it's interesting here that we have the two natures. The deity and the humanity of Christ expressed in this same passage. You notice when he came there, in verse number six, it says, being wearied with his journey. Now, we, in theology, we call these sinless infirmities. Jesus was a man, he became a man. He actually, the Bible says, he was touched with the feeling of our infirmities. Now, he never had sin. But it's not sin to be tired. It's not sin to be hungry. It's not sin for you, for you and I to have these experiences, pain. All right? You're not in sin because of those things. All right? Get that in your mind. Jesus has sinless infirmities. Why? Because He had to be go through the entire experience as a man. And He laid aside His glory As the Bible says, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. So she begins to say something about worship. Look at verse 20. Our fathers worshipped in this mountain. And ye say that in Jerusalem is the place where we ought to worship. Alright, so she thinks she knows something about this. But Jesus reveals uh, some things in this area of worship. And I think that... I'm not sure about the... Okay, we get down here to the place of worship. The Lord says in verse number 21, look at his response. Uh, Woman, believe me, the hour cometh when ye shall neither in this mountain nor yet at Jerusalem worship the Father. So he said, hey, uh, he speaks the next blank, number one is the place. Why? Because there's coming a time. So, if you put it into years, here we're at, Jesus is approximately 30 A.D., okay? And I believe Caligula is the emperor uh, in Rome, but he's not going to be for long. Maybe he's, maybe it's Tiberius still. But then pretty soon he gets to, uh, uh, all the way up to to, uh, Claudius and then Nero. But Jesus dies, buried, rose again. And then as the gospel is spreading... You know, uh, Nero burns the city, 68 A.D., July 19th. We just celebrated it, 102nd, 100, 2001, whatever it is. Anyway, uh, he burns the city, blames the Christians, they arrest Peter, they bring him back to Rome, and they lead him down that path, and, and they chop his head off in somewhere 68, late fall, 68 A.D. 67 the year before, an uprising starts in Israel. All over Israel, the armies of Israel believe it's time to overthrow the power of Rome. Josephus is their most well-known general. He's caught early in the battle, and then he becomes a correspondent for Rome. He's accused by the the Jews of being a turncoat. They don't accept his writings as uh, factual. But for three years, they fight this battle, and this battle ends... Right there in Jerusalem, Nero kills himself and the general, the main general of Rome, coming uh, to fight and to suppress the rebellion, whose name name is Vespasian. He is called back to Rome because there's no more Julians uh, in that line. Julius Caesar, Octavius, and then as they go through the different Caesars. So Vespasian is called back to become the emperor of Rome and his son who's next in line to take the army, his name is Titus. And in 70 AD, he overruns the Temple Mount by the prediction of the Lord in Matthew 24, the beginning, not one stone will remain upon another. They uh, didn't intend on destroying Jerusalem, but by the time the armies of Rome got through the barricade of those that had had uh, had barricaded themselves on the Temple Mount, they went berserk and burnt down and pushed off every stone off the Temple Mount. Just like Jesus said. A few of them gathered together have escaped. The rebellion takes its last stand at the, at the winter home of uh, Herod the Great, a uh, fortress called Masada. Rome goes down there, they barricade their way around it, they lay siege to it, but there is... Months and months and months of supplies, water, inside of this tall hill. They gather together all of the Jews and they make the Jews work because from the top of that Masada they had a good shot at all the Romans. that were They were, they were killing them with throwing rocks at them. And they got slaves, the Jews. It ends up on Masada that the last of those people that were living all but one lady and i believe her son who escaped to tell the story they committed suicide rather than to become slaves to rome that ended the suppress the rebellion there's one more rebellion later on that you know totally destroyed in uh, akbar rebellion in 135 but this is the last <clears throat> did i say it wrong it is the last of the possibilities of overthrowing rome from their ruling jesus says there's coming a time when you're not going to worship here in samaria nor in jerusalem by the time uh, 70 a.d the church in jerusalem had diminished they were underground they were persecuted Uh, uh, It it was uh, five years earlier, in 63, 64, Paul arrives and is arrested. He's bringing an offering from the churches of Macedonia over to the poor Israelite Christians in Jerusalem because they're starving to death under the difficult times they were living. It's an incredible history. And the gospel spreads so that about that same time, about 62 AD, they said in Asia that throughout all of Asia, every person heard the gospel. Amazing. Amazing. So what's happening here is Jesus is saying, I'm going to tell you this, it's all changing. You know, we live in changing times. The Lord's about to return. You better get saved. Before that trumpet sounds, at an unannounced time, those that are saved will be saved. Those that are not will remain lost. The last of these points let me give them to you six points number number one was place two is problem you worship you know not what I'm out of time can tell. the person salvation is of the Jews he's referring to the promise that the Messiah would come through the Jewish nation he's talking about himself <coughs> the prediction I'm, I'm going too fast but the hour cometh and now is when true worshippers shall worship the Father and Spirit and the truth And then the last, the pursuit, number five. The Father seeketh such to worship Him in verse 23. And then the precept for worship in verse 24. God is a spirit. And they that worship Him must worship Him in spirit and in truth. So the Sunday school lesson is all wrapped around this idea of eternal life. If you died today, do you know if you're going to heaven? Period. It doesn't matter what your background is. The important thing is that you know Christ. You know Jesus Christ, you have eternity in heaven. But there's no salvation without knowing why you need to be saved, and that's because of sin. So let's have a word of prayer, and you'll have about 16 minutes, and we'll start up the morning service across the way. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Uh, Lord, we love your word. We really learn to know all that we know about you through your word. And I pray, God, that you'd make us diligent students. Lord, I pray that uh, as this woman in sidecar it's evident by the end of the story that she did give her life to you, received eternity. And I pray that if there are those here that are not saved, that this would be the day of their salvation. For it's in Christ's name we pray. Jesus, amen. amen.